Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Your Ben Jarofsky Show for Thursday, November 10th is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com, and if you want to help out this program, you can, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A, V is in victory, S-K-Y. It is Thursday, November 10th, and this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Chewy's Running Thursday. And here's why. Because Chewy's running. And it's Thursday. It's official. I owe Clem Balanoff lunch. What a dumb bet, D. Clem Balanoff, Chewy's uh, right-hand man, uh, was on the show last week. Chewy had not announced yet. I didn't believe he was going to run. I just, I just didn't believe he was going to run. So foolish me made a bet with Clem Balanoff, who probably already knew that he was running, and they were just waiting until the day after the uh, the old midterms to announce. I made a bet, and I lost the bet. So I owe Clem Balanoff lunch. If I know Clem, he's getting the steak. If he had lost, he would have gotten you know like fish sticks or something. But because I'm paying, he's going to get the steak. Anyway, uh, sometimes says it all. Garcia's a go. And immediately I got a text from an old friend, VC, I see you, V-Train, uh, Vanessa Caleb. And she writes, hi, Ben. I'm reading the Sun-Times, and I have so many questions. I could be all in for Chewy for mayor big time. Could Lightfoot end up mayor if Brandon Johnson and Garcia split the vote? Also, President Pritzker wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. And unfortunately, is that the new standard? Does Biden have the character to step aside for Pritzker if there's no one else? Is there anyone else? I have so many questions. So I put that out there. My distinguished guest, Peter Cunningham, waiting on deck. Maybe get, get his thoughts on some of these questions that uh, listener V-Train writes in. I'm just going to deal with the first one first about Chewy and Brandon Johnson. And then we'll bring Peter on and get his thoughts. And we'll take it from there. Really want to talk to Peter Cunningham about crime and crime as an issue in political campaigns. So, Peter, do not allow this conversation to end without having that discussion. But I think, uh, Vanessa, your great questions, but I think in general, the general voters in Chicago have to rethink the politics of mayoral elections and just try to like adapt to the changes that have occurred. We learned in 2015 when uh, Chewy Garcia ran the first time against Mayor Rahm Emanuel that we have something called a runoff system. We learned that in 2015. And what we seem to forget that we have a runoff system you know, each with each passing year, we forget that there's a runoff system until we have another runoff. 2019, there was a runoff. Lori Lightfoot versus Tony Preckwinkle. So my guess is 
that there will be a runoff in this election. We'll see what Peter Cunningham thinks. My guess is there will be a runoff in this election. I do not believe that with all the candidates who have announced they're running, announced their candidacy, excuse me, that one person will get more than 50% of the vote, which is what you need to win without a runoff. Just like in Georgia with the senatorial election between Herschel Walker uh, and Raphael Warnock. It's coming down to uh, a runoff. So I believe there will be a runoff. And in that case, I think you kind of kind of put that old notion of dividing the vote to the side. And you have to think about, like, does a candidate have what? Uh, let's see what Peter's view on this. I would say minimum 15%. You got to think like 50. Does a candidate have 15% of the vote that he or she can count on that will get him or her into the runoff? I mean, maybe it's as high as 20%. In the last time, the last go around in 2019, I think it was roughly 15% is what you needed to make the runoff. That's, that's a doable, that's a doable goal for both Brandon Johnson and Jesus Garcia. Now, in my humble opinion, not saying who I favor, I believe that Chewy Garcia has a better chance than Brandon Johnson to make the runoff. But I think we have to stop the duality of thinking like, well, they're going to split the vote because I think they come at it from different pockets of strength. I think Jesus Garcia is not positioning himself as the lefty in the race. And he's more positioning himself more in a mainstream kind of way. Again, we'll get Peter's thoughts on this. Uh, and he clearly has a base with Latino voters in Chicago. Brandon Johnson got a base with lefty voters in Chicago, Democratic Socialists and the like. Lori Lightfoot, not sure what her base is. Willie Wilson, his base, I guess, is the black community and so on and so forth. So that's that's kind of how you have to look at it. I think when you get to the next uh, round, then you have to think about reaching beyond your base and expanding uh, and then try to to win it like a general election, the same uh, approach. The only way I think that um, Chewy could hurt Brandon uh, and lead to, or vice versa, and lead to Lori Lightfoot's election, if they so split up the left of center vote that Paul Vallis emerges as the number two guy, some right winger or, or emerges as the number two guy and then ends up running at Lori Lightfoot uh, from the right. In which case people like Peter Cunningham and I will really have a tough decision to make. Uh, <laughs> uh, Peter smiles just a bit. Uh, anyway, so that's uh, Vanessa to answer your question. And as far as Pritzker is concerned, you know what? The man just got elected governor for a second term in a very contested, expensive election. I think that J.B. Pritzker should concentrate on being governor of the state of Illinois and not be a Ron DeSantis type and already be thinking about 2024. The Democrats have someone in the White House. He, he is called President Biden. And I think Democrats for once in their life should just chill out, take a deep breath, uh, and appreciate the fact uh, that Joe Biden, despite his rankings in the polls, I believe is just kind of, a safe choice for America right now. And I think is all things remain the same. And of course it's hard to say going to be really difficult to defeat. All right, Vanessa, I hope I answered your questions. I'm going to want to bring on our dear friend, Peter Cunningham. 
political consultant, political strategist, uh, guitar player, singer extraordinaire. Peter, before you take the deep dive into all those issues, including crime, let's not forget that. Why don't you do a little promotional stuff, get that out of the way, and then we'll get down uh, to the heart of things. So take it away, Peter Cunningham. All right, Ben. Well, nice to be on the show as always. Uh, Nice to see you coming out uh, strong for Joe Biden. That's a bit of a surprise for me, but, uh, you know, I think he, uh, he deserves support across the spectrum. Um, on a promotional level, you know, the, my band, the Bread and Butter Band, um, periodically plays in Chicago. And we do have a gig coming up on December 3rd at the Hungry Brain, which is on uh, Belmont, just east of Western Avenue. I think it's 1519 Belmont. So we play on Saturday, December 3rd, starting around 9. Uh, come on out if you want to hear some good old classic rock and blues and fun stuff, a couple of originals and some flashy guitar playing by Peter Cunningham. He's, he's no joke. He's been on the show. He's played the guitar in the show. I don't see a guitar anywhere near him right now. So I guess uh, he's not going to play the guitar for us today. I got three of them right here, but oh, uh, wait, probably wait. not going to play guitar. No, oh, we got, yeah. you got too much to talk about. All right. Uh, so let's start with Chicago and then go uh, national uh, since uh, Vanessa was so kind as in that uh, uh, her email that my, no, my initial thoughts uh, is that we have to sort of break away from conventional thinking in terms of what a mayor's race is. It's a new day and age and, and adapt to where we are. That's uh, you heard me already riff on that. Uh, your thoughts on uh, that general topic. Well, you know, people vote for people for different reasons, right? Sometimes they vote because they like the guy or, and I use that in the non-gender specific way because they like the candidate. Sometimes they vote because they like his or her positions. Uh, sometimes they vote because they just see someone who looks up to the job. Um, I think right now, uh, a lot of the rap on Mayor Lightfoot is about personality. Um, not necessarily, in some cases it's policy, but a lot of it has to do with personality, that there's been a lot of acrimony that uh, wasn't needed. Um, you know, she certainly... Uh, uh, highly intelligent, um, uh, but she has had trouble sort of bringing people together around issues. And a guy like Chewy, and and I think I heard it already in some of his messaging, that he he wants to be a uniter and he wants to sort of build on the Harold Washington legacy and he wants to show people he can bring people together. Um, so that's 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 one thing that's coming from him. I think he's got a, you know. His lane is not that wide, in my opinion. As you said, he's got a base that's uh, uh, in the uh, Latino community. Um, he's run citywide before um, and ran a pretty good campaign in in 2015. Uh, as you said, pushed Rom into a um, runoff, and uh, you know was outsped five to one, and still got I don't know 45, maybe more. Something like that. Um, so he does have a base, and as you said, in a field as big as the one we have now, which is now about nine or ten, you know, fifteen to twenty percent is all you need. If he has ten percent coming from the Latino community, and he picks up another seven or six or seven percent from various other places, he's probably in the runoff. Um, I think Vallis, in some ways, has a clearer lane. His lane is probably going to be northwest, southwest side which includes 23% of the voters, roughly. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, I think the mayor's base maybe is sort of the progressive lakefront. 
you know, uh, although I think she maybe uh, has more support in the black community. You know, uh, when Arnie Duncan was thinking about running, we did a poll and his poll uh, showed pretty good support for her in the black community. But now we have six or seven African-American candidates. And so, you know, one way or another, she's going to be competing with a lot of people for those African-American votes. Um, so I think it's going to be a real interesting race. And I don't think anyone's uh, can, can say definitively, definitively right now who's going to win. Uh, if, if I had to bet on anybody, I would say that the mayor will be in the runoff. I would say so too. If I had a bet right now, just, but no, but, but there will be a runoff. I mean, oh, yeah. not going to get over 50%. Yeah. No one is going to, uh, we had her at 26 in a field of eight and that, that wasn't the field that exists today. It was just a, a guess. We put se- seven or eight names up there and, uh, Vallis was in there. He was at about 11. Um, Duncan was about 16, but he ultimately decided not to run. So, uh, so I do think that Paul uh, starts with a pretty strong base. Um, and I think Chewy starts with a pretty strong base. Um, you know, Brandon's obviously got the support of these union uh, leaders, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's got the union members. Uh, and I don't think he's very well known. I, I, I didn't know much about him. But, you know, all that can change with some resources. So it's going to be an interesting thing. There's no question that crime is going to be the number one issue. Um, Every poll I've seen shows that crime is the number one issue far and away. But I suspect that, um, you know, you go to some places uh, and taxes will still be an issue for a lot of people. You know, inflation is the issue and nobody expects the mayor to do much about it, but it doesn't mean they're not annoyed by it and it doesn't mean it won't influence their vote. So, uh, you know, no surprise that crime and, and kind of economics are high up on the list of, of issues and crime, especially right now. Before we get to crime, uh, let's just talk about a couple uh, of points that Chewy made in his announcement uh, that I found interesting. I'd like to get your uh, feedback on them. Number one is he talked about the Harold Washington legacy. We'll deal with that first. And uh, Harold Washington was victorious uh, in in 1983 uh, after one of the the most uh, acrimonious political campaigns I've ever experienced, ever seen. Uh, It was really just so much hate emanated from that campaign. It was so divided in this city. He barely won. People forget that. He barely won in 1983. Pete, I don't know if you lived in Chicago back then, but it was really close. Came right down to the wire. Uh, And now time has passed, Peter. Things, just attitudes have changed. Uh, I bet if you asked most people, from uh, 1983, white people included who they voted for in the Epton Washington election, they, as they, they, in their telling, they would have voted for Harold Washington. Right. And so right. if you redid it, he would have won by 89% of the vote instead right. of 50.1 or whatever it was, which right. I find is very interesting. And so, and then Punch Nine came out, which is a movie, a very well received documentary. I don't know if you've seen it yet. I've or seen it. It's fabulous. Fabulous, yes. Uh, Joe Winston was a guest on the show, director. Check out that uh, that show. But so it's like his reputation is growing with time and improving with time. And his legacy uh, is stronger now than I think it's ever been. And it's very interesting that Jesus Garcia would, in from the start, link himself to Harold Washington. 
you know, and he has reason for it. I know you know this. He was an alderman. Harold created his career by making him one of his allies and ushering him in as alderman, basically. But I find that a fascinating transformation in Chicago. The, the emergence of the Harold Washington legacy is something Chicagoans are proud of now. Uh, from the a great change from an 83 where, as you can see in Punch 9, there was so much vitriol aimed at him. Your thoughts on this, Peter? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Harold is, is a giant. And, and when you look back at the, uh, at the mayors, obviously, Daly, 22 years. Uh, Richard M. Daly, I'm talking about, 22 years. Um, uh, you know, uh, cast a big shadow over, over Chicago and in terms of, uh, you know, his, his service and his long time. And as you know, I work for him, but Harold really, really, uh, gave people a, a sense of pride and a sense of, uh, joy. Uh, he was funny. He was super smart. He was articulate with all kinds of, all kinds of, uh, you know, you know, language like he, that was antediluvian. I think was a one of the one of the words they talked about in Punch Nine. He he dropped words like that into his everyday speech. It was just hilarious. And um, uh, so, uh, you know, he 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 really really inspired the city. I I um I, I was not here in '83, but I was here in '87 uh, for his reelection. And at the time, I was playing in a reggae band with a whole bunch of uh, um, uh, uh, African-American guys and some of them were Jamaicans and uh, they were, you know, the day that Harold died, we were in a reggae club setting up for a gig and it was on TV and the whole club just stopped and these guys were crying. Like, you know, um, they, they've just really, really had a deeply emotional uh, emotionally connected to him. And so I, I, I think it's not surprising that, you know, Chewy would, uh, would link himself to that. He's, he's, um, he's, uh, he's, 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 he's an inspiring guy. And, and he also, uh, built a coalition and that's what you need, uh, to win. That's what Chewy's going to need to win. He's going to have to reach out beyond his base. Everybody's going to have to, um, uh, you know, Mayor Lightfoot did. Um, I mean, Mayor Lightfoot didn't really even have a base to speak of. I mean, she had to patch it together. I think she was a change candidate. Um, she was running against somebody in the, you know, in the runoff who was very well known to people, but, you know, they really wanted change. She represented that change in a big way. In, in Chewy's case, uh, you know, he's going to have to have to um, build, I mean, not, not just Chewy, anybody's going to have to build a coalition and Harold uh, did that. Harold really did that in a big way. I mean, other mayors have figured that out as well. Um, Mayor Daly did. He built a strong coalition that started uh, with his base on the Southwest side, uh, ended up including a lot of, including a lot of Hispanic voters, but ultimately his base in his final elections was the black community. In his last election in 2007, he won every single ward in the city. Um, so it's, it's interesting how these things change over time. Uh, well, I, I would I would never say uh, that Mayor Daly's base was the black community, but I would concede uh, that black voters uh, disagreed with me uh, in 2007 election when I urged everybody not to vote for uh, Mayor Daly. And I, I think you're absolutely correct uh, to his coalition. You could add uh, black voters in wards, uh, the black wards on the southwest side. I do believe you're correct when you say was it a plurality or majority? 
uh, in every single black ward. I can't recall if it was a plurality or majority, not that it really matters anymore uh, as opposed to maybe a bar bet, but, um, so I, that's how I'm I would. Pretty sure. I mean, I know he won every ward. Yeah. So okay. So, and, so, you know, yeah. and then Lightfoot won every ward in her yes. runoff. So you know, we have a couple of examples of that. Yeah. All right. So um, okay, let's get to crime. And uh, so just a background: uh, Peter has been coming on the show for three years. Uh, talking about crime as an issue and how we have to rethink policing and rethink policing strategies. Uh, when he first started saying this on the show, it was pre-pandemic, pre-George Floyd's murder. And it was like a different world, uh, Peter, than the one we are in now. And the world we are in right, right now does not seem very sympathetic uh, to the approach that you were talking about, rethinking. We have to ask ourselves serious questions. Like, does it doesn't make it a safer city just to have more police uh, on the payroll. I mean, these are questions that Peter's been raising for three years now. They don't seem to be very popular questions uh, in this day and age, uh, Peter, uh, politically speaking, to put it mildly. But Well, um, actually, today in his announcement, oh, yesterday, um, Chewy uh, did an interview with Fran Spielman of the Chicago Sun-Times. Um which is your home these days, right? Sort of. Not really kind of, anymore, but no, the good old days. We moved out of that studio in 2019, but go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, she asked him for some specific ideas on public safety, and he said that police, we have more police per capita than any other city, which is true. Uh, almost any other city, maybe. New York is about the same as us, but we're much more than L.A., and they have much less crime than us, um, much less gun violence anyway. And uh, he also said that he would look much more at alternative response programs because police are overworked. Uh, they're, you know, one of the strategies the current leadership has done is to extend shifts, cancel vacations. And uh, one of the outcomes of that is that retirements have been skyrocketing. Uh, and uh, they're really having trouble filling even the positions they have. So, uh, you know, these guys are demoralized. They're overworked, and, um, and, 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 and Congressman Garcia said that one of the things he'd look at is more alternative response programs, which is sort of what I was talking about over the last couple of years. How do we ask ourselves, what do, what's the real role of police? Why do we have police handling traffic accidents, for example? Okay, they're tied up for hours with traffic accidents while you know, murders and shootings are going on uninvestigated. Um, you know, the, our arrest rates for for shootings, especially in the neighborhoods that uh, a lot of the violence prevention organizations serve, is about 10%. So 90% of shooters are not arrested. And so what happens? That drives retaliation. And, you know, and people, and that makes people want to around, walk around armed because they feel unsafe. Uh, you know, as everyone knows, I work with the Arnie Duncan's program, Chicago Cred. So I got to, I've gotten to know a lot of these young guys who are at extreme risk of shooting or being shot. And they'll tell you that, you know, they're just afraid. Then they don't feel that the police will protect them. Uh, they've been in many, many situations where they've called police and they haven't come anywhere near quickly. And so, um, you know, they've seen shootings happen and then there's a perfunctory investigation or a couple of days of questioning. And, and you know, and in fairness to the police, there are a lot more shootings happen in the next few days. So they, they, they just have to start to prioritize which ones do we look at? They look for the ones that 
where they have a chance of making an arrest. And they, you know, the ones where they don't have a good chance of making an arrest, they have to move on. I talked to a, a detective who told me that one of the challenges for them is that they're trying to build relationships with witnesses who then may turn out to be offenders or who then may turn out to be victims of crime. And so that those are all different relationships, right? You're trying to build trust with a witness. You're trying to build trust with a victim, but then you're also trying to capture or arrest or investigate a uh, potential, you know, uh, an offender. And when all three of those are the same people, <laughs> it just gets harder and harder to do their job. So I don't have any, uh, you know, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't like to simplify critiques of police at the same time. I think that the leadership of the department has really, really uh, made a lot of questionable uh, decisions. And uh, I'm hopeful that frankly, that this campaign, uh, you know, exposes a lot of that and is focused on that because we can't afford to keep going the way we're going. What are those questionable decisions? Well, you know, when Charlie Beck took over after Eddie Johnson left, um, uh, one of the things he really emphasized was putting as many resources, as many resources as possible back in the districts so that the local commanders just have more ability to, to, to make their, you know, to make their districts safe. Um, they have more, more police, more manpower, more flexibility. And um, Superintendent Brown brought a lot of those officers back into these large centralized units and our experience. And there's some, there's some evidence, plenty of evidence of this, but I'll just sort of broadly assert it. Our experience is that, you know, the guys in the centralized units, they haven't built the relationships. They don't, necessarily know the communities they're being called into. They, you know, they show up in, you know, 10, 12 cars deep, uh, you know, they kind of, you know, shake up everybody. They, you know, they, their whole approach is kind of, you know, shock and awe as opposed to community policing trained officers who come in, get to know people, try and find out what's going on, see how they can be helpful and build relationships. So the guys in the specialized units, you know, they're zipping into Austin one day and then they're zipping on Anglewood the next day and they're zipping over to Roseland the day after that. And they're just not building those relationships. And we have a very, very, uh, you know, a lot of our guys at Chicago Cred, when they hear about a shooting and, you know, they have these apps now that can tell you about them right away. They go there because they want to find out who's involved and see if they can get to the victims and the victims' families and the victims' friends to avoid a retaliation shooting. So the first thing they do, and they also go there to, to support the family that was, um, you know, that that's been affected. The, you know, the victims, him or herself, and their family. And so, we notice a huge difference when local community officers are at the scene, crime scene versus kind of, you know, SWAT team type guys or big citywide unit guys. They're, you know, they're, they're much more like, you know, they're not open to help. They're not open to engaging with the community as much. They're, they're more like, you know, like I say, shock and awe. And I just think that approach to policing has not worked, has not been helpful. And I think Superintendent Brown knows that because he's pretty much disbanded these big units. That's one, that's one yeah. decision. I, I could probably think of others. Um, you know, the, the Tribune had a story basically saying that 
uh, a, a, um, a study the crime lab did on the patrol division showed that they're really not being assigned to the neighborhoods where they're needed most. Uh, and some of that is driven probably by um, seniority provisions of the contract. Um, you know, the older guys get to pick their shifts and pick their communities. Uh, but, you know, the bottom line is we have an awful lot of police officers, 13,000 police officers, but they're not necessarily where they need to be according to this study. So that's a problem. Well, this uh, gets into almost like uh, bureaucratic decisions, like how you divide your force and uh, how you allocate uh, your police officers, which is different than the psychological uh, issue that we're facing right now in Chicago. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I've not done the deep dive uh, to to, to detect uh, how crime rate today relates to at i don't know the daily years in the 90s mm-hmm. uh the o's the rom years the harold washington years the eugene sawyer years uh i just start from this general notion that as long as i've lived in chicago and i'm not blaming myself there's been crime in chicago and i'm like why is it now that we have this tremendous focus on crime in chicago it's always been here i could, i just could tell you, Peter, just horrific murders. I don't want to relive them. And ghastly crimes that have been occurring in Chicago for 40 years, the time I've lived here. Why now the focus and and then the psychological impact? I don't think of it. I don't recall it being as powerful as it was in the 90s when Mayor Daley was in charge and there was crime in the city of Chicago. I know yeah. you will acknowledge this, even though you were working for Daily. There was terrible crime in Chicago. No, I can give you. I can, years. I can give Go you ahead. the numbers right now. So the last year, and and the homicide is a useful statistic, but the more useful statistic really is the total number of shootings, because a non-fatal shooting in many ways is just as destructive as a fatal shooting. Um, it, you know, uh, it, it traumatizes people. But generally speaking. Um, we have not had under 400 homicides in a single year since 1965. Uh, crime uh, rose dramatically in the 70s. So we were getting up into the 900 homicides a year. Then it dropped a lot in the 80s. Uh, in the 90s, it was back up again uh, to the all-time peak of, I think, 970 during one of the uh, early daily years, maybe 94 or something, somewhere in there. And then it, it, it dropped for much of the 2000s. It was on and off. But during many of the ROM years, it was in the 400 range again uh, until 2016. Uh, and as you remember, in the fall of 2015, a video emerged uh, showing the uh, murder of Laquan McDonald. Um, so... That is one factor that probably contributed to the big spike in 2016. But the truth is people don't always know why crime spikes. Nevertheless, it went up to 770 or something in 2016. In 17, 18, and 19, it went down about 13 to 15% a year. We went back down into the 400s by 2019. And then the pandemic hit and George Floyd and the kind of police community relations suffered as a result. And 2020 was up and 2021 was even worse. We had 800 homicides last year and 4,400 shootings total. And one of the phenomena then is that 
medicine has evolved quite a bit so that a whole lot of people who probably would have died 30 or 40 years ago from gun violence are now being saved because we're just better at dealing with the, you know, the physical trauma of gun violence. Uh, so um, the crime lab did an analysis showing that the, the crime ridden neighborhoods of Chicago are just as bad today as they ever were during the, even the 1990s. So uh, in, in, in some places uh, it is it is just as bad. Now, the good news, at least some good news, is that it's down about 20%. Total shootings are down about 20% this year in Chicago compared to last year. Still above pre-pandemic, but it's down. And there are several neighborhoods of Chicago, uh, North Lawndale, Austin, Englewood, uh, West Pullman, and I believe Grand Crossing, where it's down about 40%. So that's pretty significant. Uh, something is going on in those places where people are stopping the shooting. Uh, it may be related to some of the work we're doing. It may be related to policing strategies. It might just be that people are tired. Uh, in some cases, there's 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 um, population decline. But nevertheless, there is something going on in some of these places that is really worth knowing about and highlighting. And you know, we're excited about it. We, what we'd really like to see, and we'd like to hear this from the candidates running for office, is a commitment to making the violence prevention infrastructure as, as permanent and as well-funded as the policing infrastructure. Okay. Mayor Lightfoot just passed a budget. City council just passed a budget with $1.9 billion for the police department. Tribune said that number actually isn't even close to the full amount we really spend on policing. It's more like 3 billion, but there's a lot of money parked in other places. Uh, Either way we're spending, you know, peanuts on violence prevention compared to that. And so we would like to see these organizations that we've been building for the last six years permanently funded, make them permanent features of Chicago's public safety strategy because violence prevention groups actually stop shootings. Police, for the most part, investigate them after they happen. That's not to say that, you know, police aren't doing their job. Many of them are, but they are set up fundamentally to respond after the facts. Mm-hmm. And we're actually in the business of trying to prevent them before they happen. So, it, so you know, we'd like to see more of a commitment to that. Well, in the, the bizarre rhetoric of politics uh, in the year 2022, uh, the notion of violence prevention uh, is often equated with softness and weakness and squishiness yep. and do-gooders and bleeding hug, hug a thug. Yeah, hug a thug. And, so, I, and I point this out on the show all the time. So I know my listeners have heard this line that's coming out. But Lori Lightfoot, who ran as a, a reformer on these matters, uh, as soon as Arnie Duncan started talking about a different approaches to crime, started saying he was a defund the policer. Yep. And she threw that at Brandon Johnson. As yep. quickly as she could label him defund the policer. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen the press release that's come out from the mayor's office uh, about Shuey Garcia. Would not be surprised if it's defund the policer. Mm-hmm. And I just find it very disheartening. I know Paul Vallis is going down that road because he's running at it from the right. So just assume he's already fired that out. To me, Peter, it's very disheartening. Uh, I do this show where I listen to people like you and uh, we have these, all these conversations about different approaches, like trying something differently, you know, something that may be just a little new and unique, 
You know, let's prevent the shootings before they occur. Let's deal with this notion of the retaliatory culture that dominates in the city of Chicago, not just in the streets, but politically speaking. It is predominant culture. You know this because you've been in the game for a long time. And yet every time you do that, someone says, you're weak, you're soft, you're squishy. The streets won't be safe. All the rhetoric that Bernie Epton used against Harold Washington, who supposedly is our hero that we all looked up to, is being repeated. Against yep. anyone who tries to embrace what Harold Washington was really all about, Peter Cunningham. It's so twisted yep. and weird. It's only it's a Chicago phenomenon that I can't quite grasp. So put on your political consultant hat as well as your, you know, police reformer hat. How do you get a how do you navigate those channels uh, in a very contentious time like the one we're in now? I mean, the irony of Mayor Lightfoot accusing others of defunding police is that she actually has uh, shrunk the police department. She eliminated 600 positions and she's consistently had another thousand vacant. So that's 16, 1700 fewer police uh, in Chicago during most of her time in office. So I think it's a mistake for her to lean into that narrative that said she has shown that she is willing to play hardball when it comes to politics uh, and she's not the first one ever to do that so i i i, I by no means you know uh hold her some different standard than everybody else um but you know chicago desperately needs to have this conversation about what we are, are asking of police whether we're asking too much of them uh, whether we're not focusing them where they really should be focused, which is on violent crime and shifting their responsibilities for a lot of other things to civilian agencies. You know, there's no reason to call police for homelessness. There's no reason to call police for traffic accidents or noise complaints or a whole bunch of youth activities that might, you know, that might turn it might escalate right now. Uh, you know, they should be focused on violent crime. They're the only ones who can do that. Even things like domestic disputes, which many police will tell you always have the potential to go south and become dangerous. You could have, um, you could have uh, co-responder programs where the police officer stays at the curb and the counselor goes to the door. Uh, other cities have done that. Denver, Eugene, Oregon, mental health crises um, are, almost universally now recognized as the kind of things that uh, a social worker is better suited to addressing. Uh, doesn't mean that, it, it, you know, it, there's always the possibility that things will become violent. Mm -hmm. So you have to live with that possibility, but uh, it's pretty patently clear that sending police officers to deal with mental health incidents isn't the best first solution. The better solution is to come up with social workers and mental health experts who can really help them, um, you know, de-escalate. So there's a lot that has to happen. And I'm not sure that this campaign will allow for that. I'm not yeah. sure that the mayor will allow for that. And that's unfortunate because we really need to have that conversation in a safe way without somebody turning right around and saying defund, defund, defund. But the truth is, if, if that's what she decides to do, she's going to have to explain away her own policies because, you know, uh, you know, she has she has allowed the department to shrink by 16, 1700 officers uh, on our tenure. And to the you know, in my opinion, more police are not what's making us safe. We have to make we have to have more effective policing mm. before we have more police. And right now uh, they're not effective for a whole host of reasons. Uh, it, there's a 
irony that I bet a lot of my um, listeners will pick up. So let's get you to address this or a contradiction. I might say uh, you began, you, you alluded to the a story you saw in the Tribune that said the police budget is up 1.9 billion, maybe really 3 billion uh, mm-hmm. when all is tabulated. Yeah. Uh, and yet the number of police officers has diminished by 600. So why is the police department getting more money in the budget if there are fewer policemen on the payroll, Peter Cunningham? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, you know, I think that obviously, um, uh, you know, pay goes up every year. They need more and more equipment. Uh, we're spending more and more money. We're, I think we're talking about helicopters now, more helicopters. Um, you know, they're creating, um, you know, community safety coordination centers. These things cost money. Uh, I mean, one of the other phenomena is that most of the ARPA money still hasn't been put out on the street that was supposed to fund violence prevention. Something, this is a city report, something like 87 million was dedicated to violence prevention. Only 2 million was spent. So, you know, I don't know whether that's bureaucracy or whether um, the city is saving it for the other years. Um, But, yeah, I mean, the police department, I think it's the overtime. You know, I think they're, you know, they're just spending so much money and time. Uh, You know, I mean, you go to a sporting event, look at how many police there are. You go to any kind of a public event and there's dozens and dozens of police there. Um, But you go to a shooting and, you know, or you go to a hotspot. We know where these hotspots are. Everyone knows where they are. I mean, the data is clear as a bell where the shootings are. And, you know, they're not, they're not occupying those hotspots. We are, though. So I can't tell you why the police budget keeps going up, up, up. Uh, maybe because, you know, that it becomes a proxy for whether you support the police. Either you spend more money on police or you're a defunder. Either you spend more money on police or you're not, you don't care about public safety. And, uh, again, it's wrong. It's just not based in, in fact. It's not based in data. Yeah. Uh, more police are not making us safer. And bigger police budgets are not making us safer. We need more effective policing. And, you know, I mean, I could tell you that the detective caseloads in Chicago, they're overwhelmed. You know, they, they, a detective probably can handle two or three investigations at a time. I'm, I'm told this is what I'm told. And I think our guys are handling four or five. You know, there's a shooting on Monday. They go out and ask some questions on Tuesday. There's a new shooting on Wednesday. What are they going to do? They're going to go to the. They're going to go to the most recent shooting because the chances of solving it are better in the immediate aftermath of the shooting than down the road. People just forget. Witnesses disappear, etc. Uh, one one of the, the points made by many guests in this show uh, as to why there's the psychology of crime uh, in in the city now, the sense the city is so safe, uh, is that crime rates are rising uh, in relatively affluent downtown neighborhoods. Uh, and this position, this this point of view is made by many guests in this show. Uh, look, as long as crime is in a handful of relatively uh, low-income black neighborhoods, it doesn't have the citywide impact that if it does like a shooting or a carjacking uh, in the loop. And yep. suddenly there's this notion that we must do something about crime because mm-hmm. it's not even safe. And here's the even. It's not even safe in the loop. It's not even safe in Lincoln Park. It's not even safe on a CTA train, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, what's your uh, thoughts on that? Well, I think it's um, it's said that a lot of people weren't concerned about crime when it only involved 
when it primarily involved low-income African-American uh, young people on the south and west side. Um, but they've been living with it forever. If you talk to Arnie, I mean, he grew up playing basketball on the south and west side, and he started losing friends to gun violence by the time he was a teenager. Um, so it's, I think, a sad fact of life that a lot of people didn't care until the crime started to affect them personally. And, you know, I don't think that's unique to Chicago. I think there are cities all across America. You know, on a per capita basis, we don't have anywhere near the highest murder rate in the country. On the raw numbers, we have the most by far. Um, like maybe twice as many as New York and maybe more than New York and L.A. combined, I believe. At least that was true a couple of years ago. Maybe not last year. But uh, St. Louis, uh, New Orleans, D.C., a uh, uh, bunch of places have higher uh, crime rates on a per capita basis. And guess which states have the highest crime rate on a per capita basis, Ben? The red states. I'm going to exactly. have a question. Uh, exactly. All over the South and the red states are all the highest crime rates per capita. The places that let everybody walk around with guns and, you know, don't do anything to regulate guns. They have the most number of shootings. Well, and this... Size. This kind of feeds into a, just like a general frustration I have that uh, our discussion of crime and our discussion of punishment uh, is so uh, dysfunctional. I'll just put it the most general, vague word I can come up with. It's just dysfunctional. It's so politicized. It, there's no real substance there. And to this point, I'll, so something I saw in the newspaper today just had me shaking my head. Uh uh, Ken uh, Griffith, who uh, Griffin, who for years was the wealthiest man in the state of Illinois, and funded the Republican Party, uh, left Illinois, moved to Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, he and he gave an interview where he said it wasn't for Texas that he went. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't even say this with a straight face. He didn't move to Florida because he didn't wanted to pay less in taxes. Uh, he moved to Florida because it's safer. Mm. And he's all part promoting Ron DeSantis presidential campaign mm -hmm. and i'm like i would love to see someone do the deep dive on how safer florida is and again i want to point out that kenny g was in chicago throughout the 90s doing quite well downtown mm -hmm. chicago big supporter of mayor daly just want to point yeah. that out and as peter said the the crime the the murders number of murders in the 90s was high so i don't know how much safer higher chicago than today was. higher yeah. than today so I just yep. want to say that, Kenny G, you know, you love Chicago back in the 90s and there were more people getting shot and murdered than there are today. So, Peter, do you know anything about Florida's crime rate or, or the number of shootings, murders, et cetera, and so forth before we this becomes a political issue and a, a national campaign, as you know, it will. Yeah, I, I don't have the numbers handy in front of me, but they're easily fine. Um, but, you know, there's, you know. Uh, the Wall Street Journal had a big article about how, you know, the national rise in the murder rate was not limited to cities. You know, people like Ted Cruz want to want you to believe that it's all, you know, blue cities uh, where the crime is happening. It's actually happening in rural America yeah. uh, to a very uh, considerable degree. Uh, and uh, so I don't have the Florida numbers in front of me, but I could certainly find them. Uh, I don't have Miami's numbers in front of me, which is where he's where Ken Griffin has moved to. Uh, but they're certainly easy to find. Um, but, you know, the truth is, I, I also don't want to pretend that, you know, that that we don't have a problem. We have a, a big problem here. We do have a lot more shootings than most other big cities. And um, 
they are happening in all kinds of places. And one of the things that's changed is that there's a lot more, um, more powerful guns and uh, a lot more people have the ability to, you know, to create essentially automatic weapons. Um, so, you know, you have what, you know, incidents like the one that happened in Garfield park a few weeks ago on Halloween night where 14 yeah. people were shot, uh, in one incident in a matter yeah. of seconds. I mean, that's just insane. I mean, it's insane enough that they're targeting, you know, families and children at a memorial for a, a, a community person. This wasn't the, <laughs> This wasn't anything related to sort of the street life. This is a, a memorial, simple memorial for uh, an older woman who had died, who was popular in the community. Somebody decided to shoot them. It's just yeah. insane. So, no, I, I, uh, I'm with you. I have learned to look at things, Chicago and the world, and we have problems in the city of Chicago. But I just find it very disturbing and upsetting uh, when people use our like misfortunes in Chicago as political talking points yeah. uh, to take us in a direction that will actually make things worse in right. Chicago. Right. Uh, one, one comment I have about this is, you know, um, the CEO of McDonald's, um, um, you know, made some waves a few weeks back in a speech at the economic club where he talked about crime and he did it in the context of McDonald's plans to, I think relocate their headquarters back downtown. They're like McDonald's a hundred percent committed to Chicago. And, um, and, you know, but he, but he reflected on the fact that the crime was affecting their decisions, affecting their employees. Uh, and, uh, and, and he, uh, you know, spoke, I thought honestly and sincerely about the fact that we don't know what to do. We don't know what's going on. We don't know how to contribute. We don't know what the plan is. And that let that be created the headline. What's the plan? The mayor had a very negative reaction to it. Um, and I, for one, believe that, you know, citizens, whether they're CEOs or, or, you know, nobody's like me should have the right to offer their opinions. So I, I, you know, her reaction was you should be educated before you speak out. Well, how are we supposed to be educated? You know, tell, how are we supposed to know exactly what the police are doing and not doing? Okay. Do, do they stand up and tell us here's where we're falling short? No, they never do that. What they do is they tell you, you know, how they're doing such a great job. And, you know, nobody believes that. <laughs> they, they, you know, it's like that old, you know, Chico Marx line, who are you going to believe me or your eye or your own eyes? Are you going to believe me or your own eyes? <laughs> I think that's uh, what he said. Or your no, lion Richard, eyes. Richard Pryor. Oh, that was Richard Pryor. Yeah. Who are you going to sure believe that wasn't me Chico or Marx? Uh, pretty sure I, I, I've been a long, a losing streak of bets that I've been making. Like, oh, half of my guests lunch at some restaurant from the dumb bets I made. But I'm pretty sure it was Richard Pryor who said, who are you going to believe me or you're lying? <laughs> I, I can't imagine Chico Marx saying, but maybe Richard Pryor stole it from Chico Marx. I don't know, but uh, I'm pretty All sure. Right, I just, I just, I just Googled it and it's Groucho Marx according to Google. Oh, if you believe to. everything on the internet. Oh, uh, okay. Well, thank <laughs> Well, we were both wrong. It wasn't Chico Marx. I'm pretty <laughs> sure Richard Pryor said it as well. Yeah, uh, right. It sounds more like a, a Groucho Marx line than a Chico Marx line. You know, I mean, people feel unsafe. People have seen incidents happen in their neighborhoods. People have heard gunshots. And, you know, what do they need? To, you know, so they're feeling this. This is real. It's not fake. We had 4,400 shootings last year. That's more than that's about 10 at maybe 12 a day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I also would uh, 
tie back something you said at the outset, which again, it's always hard to have a conversation about crime and policing and criminal justice anytime. It's really hard when in the middle of a political uh, campaign. But to a point you made earlier, this year, the shootings are down in some mm-hmm. key neighborhoods in Chicago. And if we really wanted to be as objective as we could and distance from po- politics mm-hmm. and from using whatever we can to elect this or that candidate, we would take a look at what's happening in those neighborhoods. And I really believe Lori Lightfoot lost an opportunity based on, like she could have responded to the McDonald's uh, chieftain by saying, you know what? I understand why you feel the way you do a lot of every day. We have to deal with this. I want to tell you about some success stories. Right. I would like to have a conversation. And then you would have to then say, well, is it something that you're actually doing that's leading to these success stories? Is it just as Peter said, people are exhausted. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't know. You, I mean, it's always good, you know, to, to investigate as much as you can mm-hmm. uh, when you can. And uh, so, but, you know, in this city of sharp elbows, uh, any criticism of Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Arnie Duncan learned this is immediately, immediately comes a sharp elbow, which right. is probably a foul, but I guess there's no referees in this basketball game. <laughs> and um, so no, uh, there are a lot of referees on social media, aren't there? Yeah, social media. Uh, all right, we'll leave that go. I also want to add some like good news on this front. We'll uh, sort of close with this conversation. Uh, Darren Bailey's entire campaign pretty much was based on <laughs> categorizing Chicago as a hellhole. I think he used those words. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, if we wanted to stop uh, the apocalypse, that is destroying our state. We, uh, the voters needed to oust J.B. Pritzker and elect him. And to prove his point, uh, he disseminated a bunch of newspapers that have horrific headlines and made up stories about crime in Chicago. He, yep. uh, his, he didn't do this. His the PAC supporting him did it. Uh, put TV commercials up that show people uh, on trains uh, getting beat up, a man on a train getting beat up, show really ugly crime scenes. Uh, and it didn't work, Peter. No. Nope. And I... It didn't work. And so I've lived my whole life. Well, you're a little younger than me, so you maybe haven't gone through this, but law and order with Richard Nixon, the Southern strategy of Richard Nixon. Absolutely. This is, this has been the Republican playbook since 1968, Peter, just think about that for a moment. At least, Pro- at least. Yes. <laughs> Probably since you're right. The civil rights bill of 64, 65. Uh, it's okay. They figured it out. Um, it didn't work. Didn't work in the state of Illinois. Nope. It, uh, I mean, let's face it. He was also up against a pretty well-funded candidate, right? But yeah. also a candidate who I think is a governor who's done a pretty good job. I mean, I think JB's done a good job. Uh, you know, he's he stabilized the state finances. He's made good use of the federal money that's come in. You know, he and Mayor Lightfoot, I think, handled COVID about as well as anybody, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, I, I think he deserved to be reelected and obviously I'm a Democrat. So I was going to support him, uh, even if, you know, he'd had he deserve to be elected. Well, whatever, even <laughs> if he had issues that were a lot, a lot worse, but I yeah. thought, he, I thought he's done a good job. Uh, and I think that, you know, Bailey's Bailey's campaign played out in other States as well. And we basically saw voters stand up and say, we don't buy this. We don't buy this nonsense from you crazy right wingers. 
Okay, so I'm hopeful that what happened on election night uh, is not a an anomaly, by you know, but it's it's actually a an awakening that people are realizing that you know Trump's politics and the MAGA politics uh, is not in America's interest. It doesn't help them. It doesn't improve their quality of life. It doesn't lead to a feeling of safety. It doesn't lead to freedom. If anything, we're less safe and less free. Uh, thanks to people like Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, you know, they're banning books and they're censoring conversations in schools and they're telling teachers what to teach. And, you know, um, they're taking away reproductive rights and, you know, they're taking away and they're telling the only, the only rights they defend are gun rights. And as I said, in those places where they have unlimited gun rights, we have the most violence and the most murders. And so, you know, Illinois, I think, is really more than perhaps any other state in the country is saying something very different. We're saying we will protect women's rights. We will regulate guns. We will, you know, fund our schools. We will not try and censor our teachers. I mean, that's that's a place I want to live. And, uh, you know, Ken Griffin wants to live in Florida where they're doing all those things. That's up to him. But that's not where I want to live. Um, and so, so I think JB has been a good governor and I think Darren Bailey was uh, the wrong guy at the wrong time with the wrong message. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it at that. So the Southern strategy is not dead. It took a step back. Oh, far, from it. <laughs> far from it, man. They'll yeah. bring that thing out every time they can. Oh, it's already being brought back with the Rod DeSantis campaign. I'm watching this in real time, Peter. I'm watching it in real time. IPPC, right. um, thank you so much, Peter Cunningham. Uh, it's always fun talking to you. And we went through the whole show, Dennis. I want you to know not one swear word so we could use this on Lumpen Radio. This will get dropped this week on Lumpen Radio as well as the Ben Jarapsky show. One more time, Peter, give a shout out. Uh, for your uh, rock and roll band where you'll be playing and where folks can see you. And it will be no political conversation, no crime conversation, just straight up rock and roll from Peter Cunningham. Yeah. December 3rd, Saturday, December 3rd, nine o'clock hungry brain, 1519 West Belmont Avenue in Chicago. No, I'm sorry. 2319, not 1519, just East of Western. Um, And uh, hope to see you there and hope to see you there, Ben. I don't know what time you go to bed, but you know, I can get you back in bed by 1130. If you come to the show. Actually, I have a problem in the other direction, Peter. Uh, You can't sleep. (laughs) Usually I'm up at three in the morning and I'm not listening to rock and roll. I'm reading. Uh, Uh And then that's why I I have the bizarre sleeping. Like Peter sent me a text message, ladies and gentlemen, or maybe it was an email. I can't remember at some ungodly hour. Like it was like, I'm sure you thought I was up to read it, but. I was still sleeping when you sent that thing, Peter. So <laughs> that was I, like six thirty in the morning. Oh my God! Yeah. I've been waiting for like a whole hour to send that. I'm sure I was up at five thirty. <laughs> you could have sent it anytime you want. I'm just gonna read it whenever I wake up. So I'm. Uh, I got those Mick Jagger hours. Okay, I usually go to bed around three, wake up around ten. So it's it's been working for me so far. And all right. for the foreseeable future, I'll keep it going. Uh, all right. Thank you very much, Peter. It's always fun talking to you. All right. All right. Thanks for having me. See ya. All right, this is great Peter Cunningham. Also, want to thank the man, myth, the legend, the pride of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Peter Cunningham and Arnie Duncan will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. 